Hey everyone, just a reminder that this is a mental health podcast, so some content discussed may be triggering for some. If you're not feeling up to it, hit pause, come back another day, we're not going anywhere. If it is an emergency, please don't hesitate to contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. That is a 24-hour service. Thank you. Turn up the talk podcast. Tackling mental health together. G'day guys and welcome to another episode of Turn Up The Talk. You're joined by Pat Clifton, Lockie Drew Morris, brought to you by the Clavelli Hotel and Doyle's on the beach down at Watson's Bay. Today we're joined by a, a guest who's played 151 games for St George, New South Wales country, but more importantly to this topic, the founder of Mental Health Movement, which has reached over 230,000 workers. It's 3,000 workshops have been delivered and you've worked with over 63 companies, which is amazing. So Dan Hunt, thanks for taking the time to, jo- to talk to us, mate. No, nah, thanks heaps, lads. I appreciate the the, the, the call out. I, I think on uh, on socials, uh, it's something we've been trying to get booked in for a while. Uh, but yeah, we we've definitely now made it happen. Uh, but yeah, thanks for the intro, mate. Uh, I really do appreciate that. Uh, Any time, it's quite a good rap sheet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we spoke about we have been trying to to link up for a while, and obviously you've been really busy with the mental health movement. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, so uh, look, the mental health movement is something uh, that I created back in 2016. Um, it kind of just started out as, a, as an Instagram page, really, um, sharing my own uh, personal story, struggles, my diagnosis with mental illness. And then from there, what I really found was um, I, I, by sharing that power of story, people connected with that. Um, it removed a lot of the bullshit stigma that is attached to, to mental health, mental ill health and mental illness. Um, and from that, I uh, kind of like the penny drop for me that there's something in this. Because uh, this was obviously, I got diagnosed in 2010. Uh, I started the mental health movement in 2016. Like even back in 2016, we've come a long way to where we're at now. Um, so through that, the penny dropped. Um, and then I got a bit of a business coach on board. Um, and we, my wife's uh, in business as well. So she's pretty switched on. And we just, we did some research in the space. Um, and from that research, we were able to develop what we call our mental health workplace blueprint, um, which is four stages, awareness, education, training, and resources. And then we just started delivering that within the workplace. And I guess the best thing that's helped us is word of mouth. Um, we're very authentic. We're honest. Uh, and the way in which we do things is a little bit differently. So we're not going in there with necessarily talking uh, clinical language. Uh, we are going in there with the power of story, connecting to the workers, the workforces, uh, but then provide them, providing them clear, simple, effective tools uh, and the way in which we uh, educate on it um, is something that's just gone gangbusters. Uh, but we've also got, we've brought the people with the lived experience, the education, but we've also got the clinical professionals um, and, and the research and stuff within it as well. Um, so we kind of, yeah, we're doing it best practice, clinically validated, um, which is really good. And, and a, I guess a positive aspect of it as well, we've been able to obviously have a lot of success in the workplace, but we're now bringing that to the community. Um, we've unfortunately had a number of suicides down here in our, in our local uh, Group 7 footy uh, community. So being able to get now that blueprint from the workplace to the community 
uh, is something that's it's very much needed. Uh, but we're able to do that now, in particular with the shit that's going on in the world, um, to be able to support these communities. So, you spoke about the four sort of stages. You had education and awareness, and that's a big one for us as well. We are trying to get into schools later in the year, and we both we graduated in 2016, and we found that there was whilst there was some awareness at school, there wasn't a lot of education. How have you found that difference in the workplace? Yeah, it's uh, look, different workplaces have obviously done different amounts, but let's look at like an RUOK day, for example. A lot of workplaces, they'll have the morning tea and someone might share a story, uh, which is great. And, and that is the awareness. But the question is, what if someone does come to you that is not okay? Or when we check in and they may be suicidal, or they may be going through that struggle, what are the steps then of what you put in place? What's the best practice um, things that you put in place? And that's where the education piece comes in, okay? Because when it comes to better managing your own mental health or supporting someone else manage theirs, awareness gets you to a certain point. It, it does remove a bit of the stigma. It, it highlights the problem, but then it's the education, the training, the resources and the support that's going to be able to, I guess, really drive and create that change that's needed uh, but then also with the sustainability of it. Because, uh, look, people don't want to struggle. They just don't know any other way because we never got taught this shit growing up. We're, like, for a lot of us, uh, I don't know how you boys got brought up, but it was to get on with it, get over and harden up. And then, obviously, in footy as well, that's the mentality that you adopt. And I know from personal experience that it, it just doesn't work, uh, in particular when it is going through a mental health struggle. You mentioned personal experience and, and growing up with mental illness if we go back to 2010 where you got diagnosed with type 2 bipolar and you've spoke about quite openly a lot of that build-up got to the point of the 2010 season where you were with the Dragons and you had an Achilles injury. And from yeah. what I've read, it, it felt like that was the kind of boiling point for you. Can you yeah. talk us through that that time and getting diagnosed with bipolar and what that means and what you do to handle that? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's exactly what you said there. Two thousand. I'm glad you you've done your research, boys. I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, but yeah, in 2010, it was the it was the breaking point. It was the catalyst. It was the stimulus to, I guess, go and seek that support. Um, but where I guess it built up and come from was yeah, my upbringing um, around domestic violence and things like that, which definitely had a bearing and it, it impacted my brothers, my sisters, my mum. Uh, it impacted us all of us in different ways, um, but look, one of the what I did was I just swept it under the carpet. I pretended like it wasn't there, um, and I guess I become a product of my environment. I was very angry, very volatile growing up, um, very disengaged. I guess making some pretty poor decisions for myself. Uh, but what I did have was footy, um, and that got me on the straight and narrow, gave me a sense of identity, purpose, and belonging. Um, and throughout, obviously playing footy, it, it really did help. In 2010, that was kind of my first injury that I'd, a big injury that I'd had. Um, so the thing that helped me break the cycle in which I was growing up, but then also that kept me on the straight and narrow, that was kind of taken away. And all that stuff from my past and my upbringing, the things that I dealt with, went through, it come back and hit me like a ton of bricks. And I, I didn't know how to deal with it. I didn't know how to cope with it. And there's no chance I was putting my hand up and asking for support because that's not how I was conditioned. And I thought that men didn't do that. And I thought it was a sign of weakness if you did that. So I just suffered in silence. And one of the things that I did is I put on that mask or that brave face. 
And I convinced myself and everyone else that I was okay when really underneath that mask, I, I was fucking hurting. Um, but I just I couldn't let anyone else know that. In 2010, that injury, it was, the as I said, the stimulus or the catalyst. Um, but going through that injury, you had to get surgery. And with surgery come painkillers. And for me, um, like seeing my father obviously self-medicate um, with drugs and alcohol, I'm not saying I blame him, but um, for myself, I did turn to self-medication um, with prescription drugs, with illicit drugs, with alcohol. And it put me in the worst place that I'd ever been in. Uh, so bad that I had no idea how I was going to get out. And look, to be honest with you, as a bloke, I was shit scared. Um, so it, one of the other things that I talk about in the space of the work that we do, one of the hardest questions I get asked is, how do you help someone that doesn't want to help themselves? Um, so there's sometimes there is no answer to that question. And for myself, it, it literally, it wasn't the, the upbringing. It wasn't the domestic violence. It wasn't the self-medication or substance use issue. It wasn't even the injury. What my stimulus or catalyst was, uh, was actually two conversations. Um, and that's why our slogan at the mental health movement is starting the conversation because exactly what you boys do with your podcast, you, you don't, uh, people underestimate the power of what a conversation can do it can literally save and change someone's life. And for me, look, the two conversations, the first one was with my mum. She just checked in, started the conversation with me. Uh, I used to get home from training and because I could no longer wear that mask, I'd come home, I'd I'd, I'd lock the house up, I'd I'd shut the curtains, turn my phone off and just isolate myself from the world because how was I supposed to explain something to someone else about how I was feeling when I couldn't even work it out myself? So... But she came over one day and just checked in on me. Uh, but she said something to me that really hit home. Uh, and she said to me that you, you're becoming your father. Um, and that really hit home and changed the way in which I was looking at myself, my behaviours, because um, that was that stimulus or that catalyst. And the next conversation was with Wayne, uh, Wayne Bennett, who was my coach at the time, who's been a big uh, influence and role model for, for myself, in particular through this process in seeking that support. I couldn't wear that mask anymore and I was not my usual self. So the way my behaviours, my, my my appearance, everything was it changed. But I'm not sure if the players picked up on that. I'm sure they did, but they, they definitely didn't start that conversation. Um, but Wayne did notice that change um, and he did start that conversation with me. When you get injured in footy, well, I guess you get injured in any aspect of life, it, it's a lonely road. Uh, in particular, when your team's off winning the grand final, um, it, it was it was a tough time. Also dealing with all that shit from my past and things that were going on. But Wayne identified that and he checked in with me. And he, he didn't have a go at me. He didn't put me down. He just checked in and asked, was I okay? How I was traveling? And he asked, was there anything he could do to help me? And literally, I, I'd never really been asked questions like that in that context. Um, and that was the first time in my life that uh, I, I broke down. I opened up. I shared stuff with him from my past, my upbringing, shit that I'd never shared with anyone. And although, yeah, conversations uh, that we do underestimate them, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to solve all your problems, having a conversation. But what it does, it, it was a weight of the world lifted off my shoulders. It was like, fuck, I don't have to do all this on my own. It, it is okay to struggle. It is okay to seek support. Um, and what we spoke about with Wayne, it was a, a little bit out of, I guess, his realm. And he just said to me, look, let's go get you the support that you need. 
Um, and that's exactly what we did. Um, my, my partner at the time, who's now my wife, um, has been integral as a support network. Uh, but we, we booked in with the Black Dog Institute. Um, so if you're familiar with that, they're a, a leader in the treatment and diagnosis of mental illness. They specialise in mood disorders and depression. Uh, her and I drove up there. I still remember it to this day. It was, uh, it, it, it was a, a scary time. I guess for myself, because I'd never experienced anything like this. I'd never reached out for professional support before. Uh, and I didn't know what the outcomes were going to be, but I knew that I had to do it. Um, so she supported me through all, all that. And I spent the day up there with a psychologist and a clinical psycho, uh, sorry, a clinical psychologist and a psychiatrist. And they did make the process very, um, I guess, comforting throughout. Uh, now that I, I reflect on it and, and link a lot of other people into support. Um, but I was diagnosed with type 2 bipolar, um, which for me, look, uh, I'm not big on labels or names, but what it did for me is it put a bit of context around how I was feeling, my past, how I was dealing with things, my behaviour, my, uh, I guess, substance use. It just gave me some understanding. And it was like I looked at it just as I was rehabbing my Achilles tendon injury. It's like, well, I've now got a mental illness, Okay, what do I now need to do to better manage that and no longer suffer with it? Uh, I'm big on the stuff that we educate on that language is very powerful. And you hear in the stats, oh, one in two people will be, be diagnosed with, uh, uh, sorry, will, will suffer with a mental illness in their lifetime. The word suffer, I know people have suffered, I've suffered, I know people are suffering, but I like to say, okay, I manage a mental illness, not suffer with one. Uh, and I really do believe that language is is powerful because you can have a mental illness, but be mentally healthy. It, it can be done. That's uh, and I'm living proof of that. Um, so that diagnosis, it was other than meeting my wife and having my kids, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me because it gave me some understanding, some motivation, some context um, of what I needed to do to put in place to be able to learn to manage it and be able to do what I'm doing now. You mentioned footy and how that was such a big escape for you. When you were forced into retirement with, with a knee injury, did you fear of what now you're going to escape to when you're feeling these times? If footy was always what you knew, did you have a real fear of what's life going to be like after footy, especially since you were forced into retirement? It wasn't on your own terms? Yeah, 100%. It's, uh, you, you hit the, the nail right on the head there. It was something that kept me on the straight and narrow. So in 2015, you get told by two surgeons, you're never going to play the game again. You'd be lucky to run again. You're like, fuck. Like, I remember, yeah, having the conversation with my wife. I, I broke down. I was in tears. And um, it was kind of like I was worried was it going back to that place in 2010, like the self-medication, the struggle, the dark place, the the, the negative self-talk, the the struggle, all that stuff. And, and they were valid concerns because – you look at a lot of players, yeah, in rugby league, but in professional sports, professional athletes that transition from obviously doing what they do into the next stage of their life, a lot of a lot of people struggle with that because that identity and purpose and that sense of belonging is taken away. And with that can sometimes be a void, and with that void can sometimes come struggle. I obviously had a diagnosed mental illness, a history of domestic violence, uh, issues with drugs and alcohol, uh, so I was high risk to struggle in that transition. Um, but the things that helped me was everything that I'd learned to be able to better manage my mental illness, okay? It helped me better manage myself. 
and through that process. So I knew that it was okay to struggle through that. And I also knew it was okay to seek support. So I had some really good support networks throughout that with my, my wife, a few close mates. Um, and some of the, I guess, the, the structures or the routines or the things that I put in place for myself really helped. Um, I think one thing is you've got to change your perception. Like when you play footy, you're kind of in a bit of a bubble. And then when that's taken away, you're just another bear bum in the shower. So you've got to have an understanding that um, you've got to have a bit of a plan of what you're going to do next. Um, and one of the things that I did is I, I said I'd say yes to everything for 12 months. Um, and that's exactly what I did. And, and everything just evolved and, and good things come and everything like that. Uh, but during the process as well, you've got to learn how you operate, like in terms of what works for you, what doesn't work for you. Because fuck, for so long, I'd put things in place that were worse for me, that made things worse. Um, but when you have those things, the coping strategies, the mindsets, um, the hobbies, the things that you put in place that make you better or at least help you cope or at least not make, make you feel worse, um, those little one percenters, those five percenters, they fucking make a massive difference uh, when it comes to managers in yourself, in particular when you're going through those tough times like that transition um, from professional sport. But another thing was I was able to not replace but find another sense of identity, purpose and belonging in the work that we're doing with the mental health movement. Um, starting out, it was just my wife and myself that did that, but having something that's greater than yourself being able to use your experience, your knowledge to be able to help other people uh, is something that, look, I find more identity and purpose in than I ever did playing footy. Um, and someone asked me in one of my workshops, uh, it would have been pre, pre-COVID, um, but they said, would you, would you have been able to play in that grand final, but you wouldn't be doing what you're doing now with mental health movement? And I still would not play in that grand final to be able to do what I'm doing now. That's, that's the, I guess, the importance of or, or how much that myself and our team love doing what we're doing. Um, and we're lucky that we've got some really like-minded people on board now. Um, we've got some really good people behind the scenes, but uh, Chris Houston and Ashton Sims have, have come on board as well. Um, and, yeah, it, we're absolutely loving what we're doing. But to sum that up, I think support networks, finding a new identity purpose and, and that sense of belonging, having good coping strategies, and, and, and talking about it and seeking support if you need it really did help with that transition. You spoke before about obviously being diagnosed in 2010 and then going through uh, the injuries in 2015 and you were, had your coping strategies and you had a lot of things that you could put in pl- you already had put in place to help you get through those injuries and those setbacks and ending your career. How hard was that initial struggle to implement those coping strategies? Because a lot of people listen and they go, oh, that's that's great, maybe that's something I can do. And then that first barrier is actually putting them into place and quite often people fall over it. So what, did you find anything worked for you in that initial stage of setting everything up? That's a a very good good question. Um, In particular, when you are in that dark place um, or on this continuum we've got here, if you are in that red, uh, it's a lot harder to be able to put the simple things in place. Like sometimes just getting up and having a shower or having a meal is, is a win for that day. Um, so for myself, I guess I stripped things right back. So it was less is more, uh, and, and keeping things really, really simple. Um, so for myself, it was, it was having a good structure and a good routine, but just making sure the things were simple. 
So whether it was just going for a walk, whether it was sitting down and having a cuppa with my missus and having a chat about how I'm feeling and what's going on. Um, for me, I wrote a lot of things down. So I kept a bit of a journal, uh, but in particular, a gratitude one. Um, so just trying to reframe the way I was looking at things. Um, so just writing down three things every day that I was grateful for. Um, that really helped me. But they're littlest of things that anyone can do, even if you are in that, that really sh struggling headspace. And then once you lay that bit of a foundation with the simple things, you, you just grow and, and, and you can start to do a little bit more. You start to add a little bit more. You, or you like what I say, you like to you put the bricks on, on top of the foundation. Uh, and, and look, sometimes we do slide back down and we've got to go again. But that's where those supports come in because you don't have to do any of this on your own. Um, that was probably the biggest thing, knowing you've got people beside you that are going to share the burden with you. Because that sense of isolation uh, it just disconnects people. And as we know, isolation can lead to that depression and anxiety and substance use. Awesome, mate. That's, that's great. I know a lot of people listening are going to benefit a lot from just hearing that little bit alone, let alone the whole episode. So thank you for that. Um, you spoke before about uh, Wayne Bennett and we were lucky enough to speak to Wendell Saylor last season and he actually said the exact same thing as you, that Wayne was a mentor for him and someone that he constantly still confided in to this day. What, what's it about him? Like what what makes it, is it the environment he creates with these players or why, why is he such a good mentor for a lot of players? I think that now that I, like we work in the workplace, um, we come a lot across a lot of managers and supervisors and CEOs and leaders. And the, the, what we say, what I explain why Wayne is so successful is because he doesn't just care about the player. He cares about you as a person. And he wants you to be not just a better player, he wants you to be a better person, a better father, a better husband, a better version of yourself. And a byproduct of that is you just innately become a better player. Um, and, and that's exactly like in the workplace. If you've got a manager, a supervisor, a CEO, or someone that just treats you like a fucking number or a worker, it's kind of like, well, I'm not going to go the extra mile for you. I'm not going to do that. Where if they looked at you as a person, it makes the world a difference. And that's exactly what Wayne does. And with that, I guess that approach, it brings culture, it brings care, uh, it brings accountability, all those different things that uh, make up a good, uh, I guess, a good leadership, but a good team. But one of the things that I still remember to this day that really got us together, um, I guess, as a playing group, we did a, an army camp in 2000, and I think it was 2008, or the end of 2008 or start of 2009, I can't remember, that was Wayne's kind of first thing um, at the end of one of the pre-seasons. And it was the hardest physical thing to this date that I've ever done. Over three days, sleep deprivation, we had SAS soldiers like in our faces with like pretend guns and it was just nuts the, what we had to do. But um, on one of the last night, what Wayne did was we were all around the campfire, all absolutely like just rattled physically and mentally. But we had to go around and each one of us had to share our story. Uh, personally, um, what they felt comfortable with um, and just being able to share that. Like I didn't share a whole heap of mine because I wasn't at that stage yet, but to be able to hear each player sort of go around, that just bonded us as a group um, because, and, and that that's another thing that Wayne does as well is he connects people. Um, yeah, he's, he's an un, un, unbelievable human being. If we touch back on the drugs and alcohol and you mentioned you use that to mask 
your pain and a lot of people do and a lot of people we've spoken to do that how do you now manage that do you still have a beer on the weekend is it got to the point where you know in yourself you can't drink anymore how do you manage that that yeah, social but, side of things at the same time no it's a good question and i think it's a bit of an australian rite of passage when things go good in life we, we, we have a beer. When things go bad in life, we have a beer. And look, <laughs> I, 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 still, I still have a beer. Um, i got no issue. I don't think having a beer is the, is, is the problem. For me, personally, I had to realise back then and when I did have to do that, that, that stint around drugs and alcohol and rehabilitation and stuff, I had to learn it wasn't so much the substance or what you were using, whether it was illicit drugs, prescription or alcohol, it was the reason behind why you were using it. And if you can never get to the understanding of why it is that you're using that substance, you're never going to get to the root causes of being able to manage, manage it. Um, and for me, it was a lot of, it was the stuff from my past, the upbringing, it was all those things that I'd went through that I was sweeping under the carpet, wasn't processing or dealing with. So I wanted to, uh, mask that. I wanted to numb the pain I was in. I wanted to escape the reality from it. Um, so now I guess going through that journey, um, and understanding and processing all those things and having better coping strategies, um, I don't have the urge or the need for the illicit drugs or the prescription medication or the escaping reality, um, or all those different things, um, where now as well, it's also when I have a beer, it's the people that you, you have a beer with. Um, so it's not necessarily having yeah people in your life that you have a beer then you end up going out and, and getting on it for three days you've got good people that you have a beer with that you have your set amount and then you go home after that or um you you, you do it in an environment where you do feel safe and, and looked after and i think that's a really important part um is, is doing it around and, and having the right people um with you uh and and that's something that has really helped me but yeah look i, I still do have a beer um, I do like to still, yeah, let the hair down every now and then. Um, I'm not going to bullshit or lie about that, but I've definitely, um, it's, I, I do it with the right people and it is just having a beer and, and, and things like that. With drugs and alcohol and then with sort of, like we spoke about before, the initial sort of struggle to implement strategies, are they the two main sort of barriers that you see for people or that people face when they try and overcome something with their mental health? A lot of the times when it comes to uh, a substance use disorder, um, there's a coexisting mental illness or a mental health struggle. Um, and, and research tells us that, 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 that there is that, that coexisting uh, issue because a lot of the times it's the mental health struggle or mental ill health or mental illness that leads to the substance use or, or the self-medication, so to speak. Or, and then the self-medication substance use can lead to the addiction. Um, and obviously there's exceptions to that rule um, where you can become addicted to things that aren't a substance. Um, so we understand that as well. But um, I guess for myself, the, the challenges for me was obviously not having a level of awareness or education around it, any of it. It was more like, well, that's how I see my old man deal with it. Uh, it was kind of a, a bit of a, a culture, a drinking culture in footy. Um, and it was just like, well, fuck, that's how, I, that's how I've always dealt with it. Um, because I just didn't know any other way to deal with it. And for me, with the drugs and alcohol, it'd be, it was like when it got really bad, I, was, it wasn't, I wasn't doing it with anyone. I was doing it by myself. No one knew anything. I was like, I was isolating myself. I was getting my hands on anything and everything. And I was, 
yeah, just, just using to escape that reality and, and, and numb the pain that I was in. So the barrier for me was getting some awareness and education and getting some support in place uh, that got me to see things from a different perspective, uh, got me to do things differently, got different people around me. Uh, and then that was, I guess, the, the process. But the barriers was the lack, not, not having the right supports in place, not having a level of education and awareness, um, and not having, I guess, better things to put in place like coping strategies and mindsets um, that could combat or, or help you better manage the substance use or the self-medication. You spoke on it just then and you touched on it that there is a lack of education and awareness and people don't quite understand that. Why else do you think people, aside from, like you said, growing up in your environment and, you know, we've grown up playing rugby and all that stuff and the, the, the man stigma and you can't show vulnerability, you can't show weakness, but for, when, for men and women, why do you think there is such a stigma and why do you think it's so hard for people to show their vulnerability and show that they're lonely and isolated? Well, it's conditioning. Um, and look, there's a range of things. So the research tells us that 54% of Australians that go through a mental health struggle, they don't seek support. They do exactly what I did. They suffer in science um, and they, they try and get on with it, get over and harden up. Now, suicide rates are the highest they've ever been with eight Australians taking their own life every day, six of which are men. Um, so some of the reasons around, I guess, that stops people seeking that support is obviously a lack of uh, education because people sometimes don't even know that they're going through a mental health struggle. I'll tell you this, a lot of people don't even understand that they've got a mental health. People think mental health and mental illness are the same thing. But it's as simple as this. If you've got a brain in your head, you have a mental health. And the better you look after your mental health, the better you look after yourself. Now, 20% of the population in any 12-month period will experience mental ill health or a mental illness. But the other 80% of the population, they're still managing their mental health. They're still going through mental health struggles, um, but people don't understand that. So it's kind of like you hear, I hear people say, oh, mental health doesn't affect me. What they're really saying is mental illness doesn't affect me. People disassociate themselves from it because they don't think it affects them. You've got a brain in your head, you have a mental health and proactive early intervention in looking after that leads to better outcomes. But I've had people that leave my workshop and shake my hand and say, oh, thanks for letting me know I've got a mental health. It's like, yeah, man, you've had one your whole life. Right? <laughs> so that's a base level of education and awareness. How are you supposed to look after something? How are you supposed to seek support for something if you don't even think that it affects you? So that's probably number one is the lack of awareness and education. Number two is the conditioning um where we've been brought up if someone's going through a mental health struggle they're crazy or they're weak or it's a flaw in their character or they're not tough or they're not resilient where if you're going through a, a mental ill health or mental illness and it's got to do with your uh, there's a predisposed mental illness gene in your family that's got nothing to do with whether you're resilient or not it's got nothing to do with whether you're a weak person or not it, it that's a, a genetic nature to, to what's going on there but again, that comes back to the level of, of awareness and education around it. The, the other part, um, I guess, around that get on with it, get over and harden up. When it comes to, you know, yourselves playing footy and training or being a father or being a good friend or getting your shit done at work um, or even just running your podcast, sometimes we do have to grit down on the mouth guard uh, and, and do just fucking just, just, just keep, keep moving forward. Okay, and, and sometimes you do have to sort of tell yourself, come on, mate, you, you'll get through it. Just just keep working, just keep working. But when it comes to going through 
a mental health struggle, mental health or a mental illness, when we are in the, the red on this continuum, that mentality does not work. When we get into the red or the orange, that's the indicator. It's time to seek that support. It's time to reach out because you don't have to do any of it on your own, but it's a lot harder to be able to work through mental ill health and mental illness when you're here as opposed to when you're, you're up here. Um, the, the other part is the stigma. Like so many, like we had a um, one of our footy old trainers um, from years and years ago um, come into the office yesterday and he's probably 50 or maybe even older, 63 or 64. And um, he just wanted to share his story with us because he knows what we're doing now. But he was that nervous and, and, and things like that. But he opened up and shared his story from someone that's, yeah, 65 years old that imagine the generation in which he grew up, um, but shared that story. And now through seeking support and doing kind of a lot of things that I did, he's now managing his, his mental health and mental illness and doing really well. But he wants to share that with other people. But that's the power of that because the stigma is as a society we've been taught fucking you'll be right have a cup of concrete or if you're struggling you're weak or you, you, you you're not resilient where that needs to change um and we have come a long way uh but i think where that really makes a difference because I, I get what you boys are doing you you're understanding what i'm saying but you're in reinterpreting it so the people can understand it so it's like well what can people practically do with what i'm saying well, in your friendship circles, in your family circles, start the conversations. Have the check-ins. If you notice a change with someone, check in. A change is worth a check-in. Um, start talking about uh, that if you do open up and reach out, there's no judgment. Don't put shit on people if they do want to open up and share their struggles or if they are a little bit different, you, you hang shit on them or put them down. That's where we've got to connect with them more. Um, so they're probably some of the, the practical ways in doing that that we can create that change it starts with yourself it starts in your own family your own friendship circles because we're not going to be able to help everyone but everyone can help someone and there's a big big ripple effect on starting that conversation we put some fan questions up or we put a, some questions up last night and people responded the first one was uh, i think it was roger yeah. roger was he said um where where do you think the mental health side of the game is going with professional sport um, well, we're looking at it from a grassroots level and we're being able to uh, implement our community blueprint. So that's where that's going. And I think that'll lay a really good foundation for the, the system um, as kids grow up um, and then they come into the professional system uh, with the Harold Maddies SG ball and then obviously uh, the first grade, they'll have that base understanding and that early intervention and they'll be proactive because... They've got a greater understanding of it. Um, I think, look, I can only speak for footy because I worked in welfare and education um, when I when I finished. And pre-COVID, because obviously the NRL don't necessarily have the resources now, but they were doing some really, really good things. Um, Paul Heptonstall's the, the head of welfare and education at the NRL. Um, and they had a welfare and education officer, sometimes two at each NRL club. And one kind of looked after the first grade team and then the other one looked after the reserve grade and sort of the, the Harold Matthews and SG ball. 
they used to have check-ins, um, the, the welfare officers for the individual clubs. They'd have a check-in at the start of the year and then have this whole questionnaire and everything that they went through. And they built a well-being plan for each individual. And then they'd have touch points throughout the year. Um, so that's something that was, it was, it was unbelievable. It was really, really good um, that they were putting in place. But I guess where it's going, um, I really think like individual clubs should kind of have, and, and it's the budgets for it, but having kind of like, whether it's a sports psychologist or a, a, someone that's a, a mental health sort of expert, but had time on the ground that knows what they're, they're doing, not just the textbook kind of have one for the coaching staff and then have one for the playing group. And then they kind of can interpret how each group's going or, or what's going on there, what their needs are, because sometimes it goes on deaf ears. Um, and sometimes the emotions get put into it and it doesn't get translated. So I think maybe having that clinical professional within a club would, would make a, a massive difference um, in, in going there. But also, man, the education and training, why isn't every NRL player trained up in mental health response or mental health first aid? Um, why isn't there people within a club that do become like a, a bit of an ambassador or a champion around it and get the extra training that people know that they can go to that person and they've got the training? Um, so I really think that that's where it's got to go as well. Um, I think the awareness and stuff that they do in, in rugby league is, is fantastic. Um, like the state of mind program um, is something that was, uh, was, was developed. Um, and that was a really, really good program. They use origin around that to, to start that conversation, but rugby league's the vehicle and, and it does such a, a good job um, in, in, I guess, changing that awareness. I, I think the media to be honest with you, can, like for Greg Inglis opens up about a mental health struggle or a J James Roberts and things like that, the way in which they then report on that, I think is, is really important that they've got to not make out or crucify that person or make out that they're, they've done something wrong. Because if you're a young person watching that and you're a fan of Greg Inglis or James Roberts, you look at that and go, well, shit, I'm not asking for support or I'm not coming out about it because you, you kind of get, you get put down or whatever it may be. So I think that, um, just when it comes to mental health or someone going through a struggle and opening up, I think we're going to look at that as a really big positive and, and use that in a really positive aspect as opposed to the negative one to sell papers or sell articles or whatever it may be. Yeah. We've got uh, another question a little bit off the topic of mental health from Peter. Our mate Peter's a mad um, Dragons fan. How do you think Dean Young will go taking over the reins? Yeah, really good question. Um I played yeah a lot of footy with Dino. He was yeah he's what was one of my close mates when when we were playing and and I know the way he played was he didn't leave a stone unturned. Um, he was a, a hard hard worker uh, and he was definitely selfless and everything was for the team. Um, so I don't think that his coaching is going to be any different. Um, so look, I hope he goes really well. Um, the 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 drags look they've they've got a good team. Um, I, I really do think they do. Uh, obviously, the DeBellin thing really affected them um, this year, but I think when they played their best footy was having Ben Hunter hooker. Um, so having him at hooker and the way they played off the ruck, it was so much quicker and they were using the big forwards to their advantage. But um, look, I, I think Dino will do a good job. Um, I'm not sure exactly because I've got nothing to do with the club now, but having Flano, I guess, as a support role uh, and, and those other assistance around him will definitely make a, a big difference um but yeah i wish him all the luck in the world um and the red v it's always a part of me so <laughs> we're both rooster boys so 
<laughs> the 2010 grand final still burns us a bit. Um, so just so he's a sweet. Wrapping it up, mate. What? So you've spoken a lot about um, coping strategies, uh, support networks. What are three tips that you'd give to someone right now who are, who's going through something who you know they might not be able to speak out or they have spoken out and they want to start to try and get better? What are three tips? Yeah, look, there's a bit of a recalibrating exercise that I do for myself uh, and that we do educate people on. But the, the the first part of it around it is you've got to ask yourself, okay, what, what are your daily habits and routines? What are you putting in place for yourself? Um, and if you're putting those negative things in place or the self-medication, all these things that are making things worse, you might have to have a bit of a, a reflection, a bit of an understanding around, well, I'm going to have to start doing some things a little bit differently. Because if you always do what you've done, you're always going to get what you got. So if you want something different, you've got to do something different. And I know that's hard, but you've got to look at what you're doing every day for yourself. Uh, the next one is around, um, look, it's the self-talk. So it's that inner conversation that you have with yourself. And in particular, when we're going through a struggle, so many people that it's the negative self-talk starts. It's the, the judgment, the stereotype, the putting yourself down that you're not good enough, you're a piece of shit. And Look, to, without going too deep into it, but research says that the average human being has between 60 and 80,000 thoughts a day. And roughly 80% of them are negative and roughly 80% of them we had yesterday. So if we're beating ourselves up yesterday with negativity and judgment and we're going to do it again today and we're going to do it again tomorrow, how much is that going to impact the way we see the world, the way we interact with the world um, and, and what we put in place for ourselves? So it's about understanding how do you talk to yourself about yourself when you're by yourself? And if you notice those negative thoughts and all those things happening, it's about challenging them with facts. If there's no facts in there, let them go. They're just thoughts. Um, and a, a little mantra I tell myself every day, don't believe everything you think. They're just thoughts. Um, and then the last one is who are the closest people to you? The three to five closest people to you, because they're going to be an indication of what type of person you're, you're, you're going to be and what you're doing for yourself. So if you've got people around you or in your support network that are judgmental, that are putting you down, that are, I guess, encouraging bad behaviours, habits and things like that, uh, and that are just genuinely not, not good for you, it's about recalibrating that, getting them out of you, not out of your life, but out of your support network. You need people in there that are not judgmental, that care, that aren't going to throw it back in your face or tell someone else that are com confidential. You need to have those type of people um, around you. So those three aspects, your habits and your routines, your self-talk and the people that you have around you. Mate, we'd just like to say a massive thanks to take the time and come on. I just know personally that was awesome. So I took so much out of it. I'm sure you did. So everyone else that's going to listen, thank you. I, I was lucky enough to do one of your workshops with Higgsy, Ben Higgs with the Rise Foundation. Yep. And the work you're doing is amazing. So, and to use, obviously speaking to you, you're a, you're a humble guy, but at the end of the day, you've got a, a pretty good rap sheet sports-wise. So to you, use your calibre to, to speak so openly, make a difference, congratulations and, and thank you. No, thanks, boys. Uh, anytime. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, and I hope listeners did enjoy it. Uh, I do come across a bit full on, but I'm, I'm not going to apologise for that. But uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. No, we loved it. Unreal. Thanks, mate. Thanks very much. What about on socials? Where can everyone find you and the mental health movement? Yeah, just mental, uh, yeah, mental underscore health underscore movement on Instagram and then just mental health movement um, on, on LinkedIn and Facebook. That's the other one. Uh, and then our website's just mentalhealthmovement.com.au. Awesome. Well, thanks very much, mate. All the best. And um, 
hopefully we'll speak to you soon. All good, lads. Take care. Keep Thanks, starting brother. that conversation.